This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mood, a Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Ethan Castile, a software engineer and transgender man about town in Somerville, Massachusetts. Ethan, welcome to the show. Hi, welcome. That was silly. I mean, I'm I'm being welcomed to you. I think that I think that's apt. Welcome to my childhood bedroom where I am staying. That is remarkable. How would you characterize your childhood bedroom in like one phrase? Um, it doesn't have much of my old stuff in it. My mom's turned it into her office. Beautiful. And it, it helps me to visualize it perfectly. Um, then if you are ready and I am ready and you're in your childhood bedroom and I'm in the studio, um, I think we are ready to just dive in and start answering questions. I'm kind of excited about the first one because I was slightly on the fence um, in terms of whether or not I thought it was like a genuine, slightly naive cis person or possibly somebody who was just trolling and looking to have a little bit of a laugh. Um, and I figured either way, this type of person definitely exists and I'm really happy to answer this kind of question. So I will stop editorializing and, and just read it. The subject is worried. I got it wrong. I, she, her have two kids. I recently read a book with my eldest who's four that had an obvious barnyard animal metaphor about transness. And I mentioned that some people look like a boy, but feel like a girl on the inside and vice versa. I asked them, do you feel like a boy or a girl? They said, I am a boy. Until now, they've been a girl. I thanked them for telling me, but I was also searching for the right thing to say, and I'm pretty sure that I failed. I asked them if they wanted to have a boy's name or wear more boys' clothes or cut their hair, but they looked at me in horror and said, of course not. They love to wear dresses, play with dolls, and their favorite color is pink, but boys can like all of those things. After that, I asked, how do you know you are a boy on the inside? They said, because of the sounds their stomach makes after they eat. I can't help but question if they really are a trans boy, as they also sometimes state with full conviction that they are a dinosaur. I know gender is a social construct, and what I expect of a boy is due to gender brainwashing, but I also know that they're not a dinosaur. I walked away with the feeling that I didn't get this talk right, and I know that there are many talks still to come. How can I get this right? How can I support my child? Did you, Ethan, get a similar sense when you were reading this that, like, it was kind of a coin toss between like slightly naive but well-meaning parent versus like somebody's idea of what like a, a an over-the-top trans-affirming parent might try to be like. Yeah, the dinosaur thing was what raised a lot of eyebrows for me. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I can certainly imagine a number of uh, like well-meaning cis parents who try so hard to sort of bend over backwards to accommodate a, a sort of like theoretical construct of what they imagine a trans child might look like, uh, that they can create a situation like this for themselves. So again, regardless of whether or not this is an actual um, real book and real parent, I think it's it's useful to try to, you know, think through, uh, how do you talk to four-year-olds? Which I really think is like the broader question here, right? It's like, how do you talk to a four-year-old? If anything, I think that's the sort of like underlying universal problem is that like four-year-olds are sometimes very like prone to uh, make grand sweeping statements that sometimes are difficult to follow up about. 
and, and trying to figure out like how do you take you know their like interiority and personhood seriously um, while also recognizing that four year olds love making shit up and saying wild and unpredictable things um, partly just for the joy of watching grown ups uh, panic and spiral. Yeah, and so I think there's an extent where you just have to roll with it in in like a kid led kind of way. It sounds like this kid didn't ask for any changes, so you don't necessarily need to make any changes immediately. But if they like decide their name is Henry tomorrow, call them Henry until they ask you to call them Lola um, and then call them Lola and just like sort of be in an ongoing way, like the the sort of parent who takes your kids seriously, even when it doesn't necessarily seem like they're being 100% serious. And then when there is something important, they'll be comfortable telling you about it. Yeah, I, I think the sort of like sincere underlying question is, is there a way to mess up an initial conversation about transition so badly with your four-year-old that you just completely fumble it and there's no recovery? And I think, you know, luckily to that question, the answer is no. You know, if you have a kid who's got anything like transition on their mind, you're going to have a lot of conversations come up and the kid's going to bring it up more than once. So you don't have to worry that like this was your only chance and you missed it. Again, like the the context clues here, right? Like the parent in question clearly, I think, wanted to ask her kid about transness or just like inform her kid about transness and was sort of like, I guess what I'll do is like I'll read a book that has a sort of simplistic idea of what transness means, which is like, here's an animal that looks like one thing but feels like another thing, which is like, you know, as as metaphors go maybe useful, maybe not. I don't have like a really strong attachment to looks like, feels like type of language. But we was clearly hoping like the book is going to do the heavy lifting of explaining what transness is. And this is going to be a sort of like universal legible understanding of transness. So once my kid hears it from the book, they'll know exactly what transness is. And, and I just want to maybe like let this parent kind of relax a little bit, which is just to say, you know, not everybody's understanding of transness is I look like X and feel like Y. And I know these two things to be at odds. Um, and that's how I'm going to come to you about transness. So, you know. I guess really this is all a pretty long way of saying your kid didn't come to you and say, like, I want to make a change, as you pointed out, Ethan, or uh, I really want to stop doing this thing we've always been doing. You brought this up. You asked your kid a question. It sounds like your kid gave you a slightly facetious answer because your kid was just being, like, whimsical. So I would probably for now put this in the same category as the I am a dinosaur statement. Your kid was, like, being a little goofy, having a little fun. That's a pretty usual age for kids to associate like like low risk or low stakes activities with like boys or girls, right? Like they might say we're like, you know, only boys stomachs grumble or like only girls know what barrettes are, you know, um, and, and part of the fun of that at that age for them is like naming a boundary that they're not 100% sure is true, but stating it with a ton of authority and then seeing how people react to it. Yeah. And also just even like imagining different things for themselves and like, I mean, as a former trans four-year-old, I knew that I was a boy with like a lot more conviction than I knew I was a lion. But yeah, like they can try things out. And this may have been their first opportunity to be like, what if I was a boy? And maybe it's it. They felt something about that. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they like, well, forget it completely. Yeah. You know, I I think that's a really useful angle too, because I'm thinking, I don't think I had any conscious idea of, of my transness at four. And I don't even think if someone had explained it to me using barnyard animals that it would have made sense to me. Um, And so I think maybe one of the ways we can 
let this parent let themselves off the hook is like you're not trying to uncover some deep ontological truth here. You're just asking your kid, how you doing? How's your gender? And uh, if things are mostly not broke, don't worry about trying to fix it. So, you know, I would say in the future, like, let your kid know that you're always available for conversations, but maybe, you know, lay off the like, I want to read you a book about a pressing social issue and then ask you a leading question as you try to like raise your kid. Like, I think that is not necessarily a strategy that's always going to bring you a lot of like joy and useful information. I don't know that I need to get into a lot of like what I expect of a boy is due to gender brainwashing. Like, again, that was the line that kind of struck me as right on the line of like, either, you know, that's slightly reductive and you're just trying to like wrap this up or you're being a bit trollish. Either way, I don't know that we need to get into a ton of that here. But yeah, if somebody says they're thinking about stomach rumbling and then they want to go do something else, that's one clue that your kid didn't just share with you something that felt like deeply and, and, and seriously true. You know, like you can trust your own judgment here. If your kid's like, stomachs make weird noises, that means you're a boy. Goodbye. Um, you're probably not having like a serious heart to heart with a kid who's like, please let me transition. Yeah. The book, read a book and now my kid is trans, like does actually kind of same kind of like a segment on Fox News. Yeah, like it's this forbidden knowledge. And once you name it, you can confuse a four-year-old into believing they're trans. Um, and that, that I think is where it's useful to think about this in terms of like a potential anti-trans specter is like, see, kids are so easily confused and misled that if you read them a single book about, you know, barnyard animals wanting to switch species, that's obviously going to brainwash them into thinking the transition works and is a good idea. And then you will thereby trick them into becoming trans and ruining their lives, um, which I, I think is um, pretty, pretty obviously uh, not something people actually believe. And it is something uh, that is simply used to try to fuck with trans people. And I, so I'm not going to worry about that one too much. Um, I don't think that's actually happening to anyone out there. I've never encountered a, a book that could convince a four-year-old to do something they didn't want to do, mostly because I've met some four-year-olds and almost nothing can convince them to do things they don't want to do because they are four and they are incredibly uh, obstructionist. They're always right. Exactly. I've never, yeah, I've never met a four-year-old who was like, hey, you know what? You were right. I'm really sorry. Uh, I, I spoke too soon on, the, on this topic. Uh, I, I should have gathered more information. You were right and I was wrong. That's really on me. Whenever you feel ready, would you read our second letter? Yeah. Subject is something blue. I'm having an eventful year. I graduated from professional school, contracted and recovered from COVID, took a grueling multi-day licensing test, and I'm about to get married to my longtime partner and start a new job in my field. The licensing test really took it out of me. I deferred socializing for months, telling myself I'd had fun after the test. During that time, my partner took on the lion's share of chores and didn't have much of a social life since he usually relies on me to schedule that. Now that the test is over, my partner expressed eagerness to spend more time together and for a more equitable division of labor. But I feel exhausted and depressed and don't want to do much of anything. I'm having trouble thinking of fun activities or even feeling excitement for our upcoming wedding. Recently, my partner and I came back from a days-long event that had required me to do a fair bit of work, manage the feelings of others, and be charming towards strangers. We were running an errand together, and I wanted to listen to a podcast in silence while he wanted to talk to me. I apologized and told him I felt depleted from talking to strangers all weekend. He said, I do too, but talking to you doesn't deplete me. 
I'm not sure I believe that introverts are always depleted by socializing while extroverts are always recharged, but I've always considered myself an extrovert and my partner an introvert. Lately, however, I've been finding myself more than, more than usually exhausted by talking to other people. I'm worried that I'm missing my partner's bids for connection and making him feel lonely or unimportant to me. I think I've been more self-centered than usual lately. Also, I'm usually the one who controls my partner when he's in a bad mood, and I've become impatient with that role. Feels like something I no longer have the energy for. I've told my partner that I've been feeling depressed, and he was sympathetic and asked what he could do to help. Unfortunately, I didn't have many good suggestions. I know that he can be counted on to help me both upon request and on his own initiative. He's really a great person and partner, and I want to get back to the feelings of excitement about our relationship and wedding that I had two months ago. I want to be more present and invest more care and attention into our relationship. I think maybe I also want to be free to feeling responsible for coaxing him out of grumpy moods. Unfortunately, I don't feel very able to do any of that right now, or at least not easily. How can I move through this difficult time, become a better partner, and recover some of my joy? Big questions, obviously. Do you have a sense of where you want to start with this one, either in terms of like how the letter writer can look after themselves best, how they can handle their relationship with their partner better, or just general relating to like the the world at large? Yeah, I think this is like not really about the partner. It sounds a lot more like the letter writer is depressed and doesn't really feel happy about anything. And yeah, is having trouble feeling excited about like, things that they used to feel excited about and and like the partner is there and is just seems to be sort of falling into the category of like everything is sad and exhausting. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you had a similar read on that. Yeah. You know, I, I also felt pretty convinced by the letter writer's description of themselves as like, I think I'm depressed or I think I've been feeling depressed. Like that feels accurate kind of looking at this letter. Um, I think that's dead on. So I, I want to both, um, I want to try to find ways to like balance between like encouraging the letter writer to take that really seriously as they think about like different ways to move ahead and also to try to go easy on themselves while also separating out like the question of a more equitable division of housework as opposed to say like learning how often to you know make plans to see friends if you're really tired because because like the one of them I think is I would say pretty important to put at the top of your list when it comes to you know, the last couple of months, your partner has been doing the lion's share of the housework. And, and they've recently said, like, I'm really looking forward to this part of our relationship being done. Uh, I think, listen to that, pay attention to that. I realize that you've mentioned you don't have a lot of time and energy. So I'm not suggesting that like starting tomorrow, you need to deep clean the entire house and like start power washing the sidewalk. But I, I would say, you know, start incorporating more chores into your schedule first and foremost. And and also talk to your partner about it. Like say, what's that going to look like for us this week? How can I start taking on more of the laundry? How can I start staying more on top of the dishes? Like what does that look like for us? Just because I think that it's something that your partner has really stressed. They want more of your participation in. And just is, is really, really different from stuff like, I'm not so sure I want to keep like scheduling my partner's um, social calendar anymore, which would make a ton of sense to me to want to step back from. Whereas saying like, I don't really feel like, you know, dusting anymore, I would have less time and sympathy for. Yeah. And I think also just like getting like serious help with their depression is should become a priority. Like, I know I've been in places where like, I think... I've got something big going on and I think I'm going to get better after it, but it's sort of just like one thing after another. And then like months have passed, like after the thing, 
when it's going to get better and nothing's gotten better, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Like you don't just go through, especially the recovering from COVID stuff, which can really take it out of you, even though it doesn't sound like the letter writer has noticed many like medium or long-term effects from COVID. Even if you aren't like experiencing long COVID, it's still uh, a knockout to recover from. Um, And and, like, I don't want to like make light of this either. There's still wedding planning going on, right? So it's not even like, oh, wow, now my schedule's really opened up and I can rest a lot. Like you're still planning a wedding, which is itself extremely, you know, time consuming and often very expensive. So I, I think letter writer, first and foremost, I would encourage you to not start like putting a lot of stuff back on your social calendar, but start scheduling more naps, like genuine naps, not like I will lie on the couch and look at my phone for four hours until I feel slightly high, but like actually getting in bed you know, keeping your phone on the other side of the room or something and and closing your eyes. Um, I, I think that's something that you're really, really going to need a lot of. And then I would also, yeah, encourage you to talk to your doctor. If you have a therapist, checking in with your therapist, letting them both know that you've been feeling depressed and exhausted lately, not necessarily so you can like get on medication right away, but just to put that on their radar. And so that like, you know, your your medical team is aware that that's something that you're going through so you can talk about your other options. And I think, too, sharing that with your friends, especially if you're like, oh, I want to start seeing people again, but I don't have the energy. This is great information to share with your friends, because sometimes if you just kind of vanish and don't say anything, people don't necessarily know what to think, or they might think that you're just really busy but doing great. Um, And not that they're going to be able to, like, change or fix the way that you feel on the inside, but it can really help if you take a few of your close friends into your confidence and just say, you know, I've been going through a ton lately. Things are slightly easing up, but I still feel pretty overwhelmed and um, I'm just having a tough time. I I think sometimes people are reluctant to do that either because they feel like if I can't promise that I'm going to be done feeling this way in like two months, I worry that I'm burdening my friends. And I just don't feel that, I don't think that's how your friends would receive it. I think they would actually really like to know, even if there's not a lot they can do other than sort of sympathize and occasionally, you know, check in. I think checking in with friends is definitely good. I think Finding some social things or some relaxing things that feel manageable is also helpful. So even if you've like finished work and you think that you don't want to talk to anyone for the next week, that you're not absolutely forced to, um, yeah. you might find that once you get started, you feel a little better. Um, maybe not while you're out doing an errand right after you've back from the stressful work event, but like schedule things with your partner that you both are looking forward to. Um, that also do not take a ton of effort. Yeah, and and uh, you know, I think in that vein, like if if this made you kind of realize, I'd like to occasionally run more errands by myself so that I can also kind of mentally decompress. Do that, or if you just realize, like I need to start scheduling, maybe not every single day, but a couple times throughout the week, an hour or two where I know I'm going to be by myself, not speaking to anyone, not generating anything for anybody else. Um, And let your partner know, again, that this is just a need that you have. I think that the situation you described where you just said, like, oh, I really want to just, like, chill out and not talk. And your partner mentioned, like, well, you know, I like talking to you. It doesn't deplete me. It doesn't sound like they were saying that, like, to correct you or to make you feel bad so much as you were just sort of realizing in the moment that your partner presumably is, like, getting enough alone time and, like, not overwhelmed right now and you're in a different position. And so hopefully you don't have to think of that as like, oh, my partner is good and I, I should feel like a jerk because I'm feeling exhausted. So much as just you've realized you need more alone time than what you've been getting. 
and and that that's something you need to prioritize so that when you do spend time with your partner, you're not feeling like depleted or worn out. Um, so hopefully, you know, that doesn't feel like something that you need to apologize for that you've done really wrong. That's just an area where the two of you are slightly different. And again, I just really encourage you, don't worry too much about the introvert-extrovert divide. What you're noticing right now is something that you need, not necessarily something that you are. And so I just think like if it's not an identity category that's useful to you, don't waste a lot of time trying to figure out like, have I stopped being an extrovert or am I some sort of weird introvert extrovert switch that needs to be categorized? Just like you've been burning the candle at both ends, you're tired and you need more alone time. I think it's about as much thought as you need to put into that. Um, I do want to get to this too, because again, it's so different between like, I'm worried I'm missing my partner's bids for attention. And I'm worried I've been more self-centered versus I don't know how to like relate to other people or how to get together with friends because your relationship to your partner is really different from the way that you're going to relate to friends, acquaintances, casual coworkers you see once in a while for a drink. And so um, I I don't want you to feel like that's just all one thing that involves like socialization that you have to fix overnight. Yeah, definitely. I don't think this is something that can be fixed overnight. Yeah. 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 And so some of this, like letting your partner know when you need alone time, um, you know, taking responsibility for scheduling that time and figuring out like what you need in order to make that time feel useful. I I want you to feel like that's something you get to do, letter writer. Um, When it comes to, you know, I'm worried I'm missing my partner's bid for connection and making him feel lonely. That is just like a great opportunity to just tell him, like, just say that out loud to your partner. Say, I'm worried about that. And I want to make sure I'm not missing anything big aside from the housework, which we've already talked about. And you've been saying that you're really, you know, looking forward to being done with doing most of it by yourself. Um, have you felt really like left out or really isolated in the last couple of months? Again, without promising I'm going to be able to fix all that or change it immediately just because I care about you and I'm curious about your internal experience of the world. Um, you can ask and get real answers to that fear that question. You don't have to just wonder on that front, Um, especially if you also want to offer in that conversation something that you want to change, which is historically when you've been in a bad mood, I've done a lot to try to cheer you up and I'm not sure that that works for me anymore. I don't know if that's the way that you want to bring it up, letter writer, if there's something more specific that's been on your mind. But that is really separate from spending quality time with your partner, making sure that there's an equitable division of household labor. That's like a dynamic or a habit that you would like to change and I think is totally appropriate and worth bringing up or or even just not doing it anymore. And like the next time that your partner's in a really bad mood, instead saying something like, hey, I can see that you're having a really rough time. I'll leave you alone. Let me know if you want to talk later rather than. I don't know, offering a lot of like treats or distractions to try to cheer him up. I don't know what your strategy usually is in that moment, but you have my full permission to stop doing that right away. Yeah. The largest partner red flag for me was the fact that he went months without socializing because the letter writer wasn't there to manage his calendar for him. I feel like if he needs to make any changes, like that's probably the first one he should make. Also, if he's feeling lonely, because his partner is like busy and tired, uh, maybe he should get some of his need for socialization filled by his friends. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And, and I wonder, because it, it seemed like in a lot of ways, like the letter writer's partner seemed like he'd been doing a pretty good job of 
being there for them while while they were going through a lot. But I, I agree that also kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I feel like, again, you can't necessarily say to a partner, I demand that you become a social butterfly in the next three months or like you have to start making plans without me. But just to say, yeah, I feel a little pressure or I, I don't know, maybe like ask first because like maybe your partner hasn't been socializing a lot in the last couple of months, partly because normally you make the plans, but also because, you know, he's been supporting you through a tough time and doing all the laundry and all the dishes. Like maybe he's just also been a little bit more tired. So I don't want to necessarily jump to he's only stopped socializing with people because he refuses to do it unless you do it for him and maybe ask a couple of questions like, have you noticed that this has changed for you in the last couple of months? And like, if in the future I were to sometimes schedule events for me with my own friends that didn't include you, because everybody needs like, you know, a night out with their pals aside from their partner, you know, would you be able to do the same for yourself? Um, how does that sound? If I schedule slightly fewer of, of our events together, just because I need a break, are you prepared to pick up the slack? Like, Again, there's there's nothing here that really, really set me off in terms of, oh, I'm really worried this isn't a good partner. So I feel like a lot of this is just something that will benefit from honest discussion and, and open-ended questions and real curiosity. It might even be like your partner is asked um, what he can do to help because you're feeling depressed. I think maybe even asking him to like put some low-key social things on the calendar for the both of you might be something mm-hmm. concrete. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially, yeah, again, you can really, I think, take him at his word when he says, I want to help. And maybe telling him, okay, well, here's a couple of concrete things. And here's also how I'll be helping more by doing more of the chores. And then in exchange, if you want to help, I would love it if like once or twice a month, you'd schedule something either for the two of us or just for you. Um, I'd appreciate it if you like helped me figure out some more alone time. Those are two pretty big things right there that you can ask of your partner. And I mean, big in terms of things that will feel important to you, not big in the sense that they require him to like totally change his life. Um, And then also, I want to have a different relationship with, uh, you know, how we handle it when you sometimes get grumpy in the past. I feel like I do a a little juggling, a little song and dance to kind of cheer you up. And I want to stop doing that. That doesn't mean every time you get slightly irritable, I want to just like fly out of the house. But I'm going to be changing the way that I respond to that. And I want you to know that so that you're not taken by surprise. And let us know how those conversations go, you know, recovering joy or like bouncing back from a prolonged illness and a lot of professional stress. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. So I I realize at least in the immediate term, maybe some of what you're going to be recovering first is rest um, and peacefulness and solitude. And you'll be able to add some joy onto that later once you've got a few more months of that under your belt. And, you know, again, part of the reason it's useful to bring it up with like a doctor, a therapist, a psychiatrist, whomever is, that's a person you can check in with every couple of months. And they can say like, hey, you mentioned you were, you know, here emotionally last time we spoke. Is it about the same now? And then you can, you know, have that sort of like external uh, accountability for, oh no, I like changed three or four things about my life and I'm doing better. Or, you know, I changed three or four things about my life and I still wake up feeling really distressed every day. And then maybe it's time to start talking about adding some medication into the, um, into the mix. But that's a, that's further down the road than this. And I feel like we've given this letter writer a lot of suggestions already. So maybe now's a good time to, um, pause. Do you have any final thoughts for this letter writer? Anything you want to, um, send them out the door with? Just it's tough and don't beat yourself up 
that wasn't a very good thought. I think it can be lovely to be reminded not to beat yourself up, especially when the thought is like, you know, when you're thinking to yourself, you son of a bitch, why aren't you more joyful? It's like, that never helps, right? Definitely not. Yeah, I've I've never successfully like yelled at myself into joyfulness. And yet I sometimes do think like, that's a reasonable response to have. That's going to work this time. It always seems like a good idea. Yeah. Um, well, before we move into our third letter, this is often a moment where I, I like to pause and ask my guests a little bit about either, you know, something that they're working on right now or how they came to be on the show. I'm excited to have you here as another STEM representative because, uh, as you know, this is sometimes a humanities-heavy show. Um, so let me ask, how are things in your life going? What are you working on? How did you come to be on the show? Well, so I'm a software developer. I work at a startup called Solo.io, and we make cloud networking software. And yeah, you've asked for STEM people who want to be on your show and I feel like I don't really see very many other trans men in STEM or in software. Um, So I wanted to be here and just be kind of visible as like someone who's out there doing this. Or at least audible, right? Because I can't see you. Sure. You can can picture me and see my name on the show description. Well, fabulous. I'm so glad that you are here and visible. And um, I think that that's going to be really useful, especially for this one. This one is sweet. This one is charming. The subject is don't want to be a landlord, which I think is great. That's a wonderful ambition. When I got divorced, I doubled my mortgage to buy out my ex-husband so I could stay in my home, which I love. I can make the payments alone, but if I were single, I'd get a housemate so I could rebuild my savings. But I'm not single. When my partner first moved in with me, I didn't charge rent due to the pandemic. I love him and loved living together. He's great. I've since moved out for one year to pursue a fellowship in another city. He got roommates and their rent covers the mortgage. But when I move back, how should we revise our budgets? We want to resume living together, and he doesn't want to have any additional roommates. I'll likely be making more than twice what he does. And if we were renting, I'd want to divide our share of the payments based on our income. But since it's a mortgage, I'll be building equity while he won't. I'm reluctant to give him a stake in the house, given my debt from buying out the last guy, But since I'm still way ahead of most people my age financially, it feels exploitative to charge him rent. My partner insists that it's fine as he'd be paying rent if he lived somewhere else. Should I find a way to give him a minority stake? Is there another option? I don't know if you have the answer, but I value your approach to property issues. P.S. I'm not the am I the asshole post. I'm trying to avoid creating that problem. I'll I'll start just by saying letter writer, I don't usually read Am I the asshole? So I don't know what post you're talking about. I will just imagine someone who's in your situation, but worse somehow. Um, But also it would be fine if you had also posted your problem to Reddit. You're allowed to ask as many people as possible or as many as you want uh, for advice on any problem that you have. So I guess this is just a sort of general PSA for anyone. If you want to write to me and also other advice columnists or other like forums or social media sites, like go nuts. Um, this isn't like submitting a, a novel where if you like sent it to me and then somebody else, like one of us would have to fight the other for it. Like we could all try to take a swing at it. My read on the, I'm not the, am I the asshole post was that there was someone real cringy on, am I the asshole? And they're trying to like disavow themselves from, from whatever disaster that may have been. I see. Yeah. Well, I just let a writer again. I just, I, I feel nothing but warmth towards you. I believe you are not an asshole and I believe you are not cringe. 
Um, and so don't, don't worry about having to disavow anything like that. Um, <laughs> even, are you like aware? I've never heard of this before. I don't think there's a way to give someone a minority stake in a mortgage, right? Like that's not, you can either put somebody's name on the, the, like the deed or get someone's name on the lease if you're renting, but you can't give someone like a, a 10% share in your home, right? I mean, you can, contract law is fairly flexible. Okay. I'm sure you could like find a lawyer who would write up that like, if we sold this house, the letter writer would get like 90% of the proceeds and the partner would get 10%. But also I don't think they should do that. So right. maybe we should just skip over that. Yeah. I mean, even if it were financially possible, you know, you two are not talking about like owning multiple properties as part of like a, a wealth portfolio. You're talking about a house that you're both presently living in. So like, a minority stake, even if such a thing were possible here, wouldn't really reflect upon like the issue. Because the issue is just, we both want to live here. It's a, it's a house that either we live in or we don't. Um, so I, I would encourage you not to go down the route of trying to find a way to give him like, I don't know, like, oh, technically he owns the downstairs bathroom. <laughs> I also think, letter writer, you're you're being a little hard on yourself. Like, it is reasonable to, you know, expect him to pay rent if he is living there or like what would be rent if if he were renting it. You are already, I think, being a pretty reasonable person by saying, I want to do like income-based payment where I'm not asking to split 50-50 with somebody who makes like less than half of what I do. He's told you he's okay with it. You know, if you just need to be absolved by a stranger in terms of like, am I doing something like uh, am I like exploiting this guy? I, I sure don't see it if you are. Yeah, I, I think it's totally reasonable to have him pay at least something towards it. And I think that like you can both come out well as part of this. Like you can both reduce your costs and like you can both consider, like think of yourselves as a team building finances together if like you feel like you have a future with this guy. And I, I also have like some concrete ideas for how to like think about breaking this up in terms of like coming up with amounts and also like sort of feeling good about the amounts that you come up with. Yeah, I would love to hear some of that, please. Yeah, so the first one I have is like your mortgage payments are going to be broken into like the, the paying down the principal aspects and the paying interest aspects. And it seems totally fair to say that the letter writer is fully responsible for the principal aspects of the payment because that's what's building the equity and like that's what just belongs to them. Mm -hmm. And so then they can then divide up the interest parts of the payments based on income um, after that. That sounds brilliant. I don't even know what that would entail. So I'm already glad that I've got somebody uh, STEMI on the show because I wouldn't even know what to say about that. I remember that interest exists. Couldn't tell you what it is. I mean, a metaphor for it is it's almost like rent you're paying the bank. So if you'd be sharing rent on an apartment, you're sharing the rent that you're giving to the bank by sharing the cost of the interest. And like early in the mortgage, um, this is going to be like most of the payment, but also like early in the mortgage, you're not building a ton of equity. Yeah. And I just think to, to bring it back to something that I think I can speak to, you know, letter writer, your partner knew when he moved in that you owned the house and he didn't. Like he, he has been totally clear-eyed. He's gone into this knowing exactly what he's getting. There's no part of him that like thought he was moving in and eventually you two were going to like buy a house together. If at some point you two have been involved for a long time and you want to get something together, you can discuss that. But I think it's totally 
reasonable, understandable, and even prudent to say like, I really care about my partner and I also want to have my own money and have my own property. Uh, That makes a lot of sense to me. So yeah, I think everything about this sounds pretty straightforward. As long as, by the way, the roommates he has right now are aware that their lease is like short term and that when you come back, their lease will be up. My guess is you've already communicated this to them. That's what they knew they were getting when they moved in. But just make sure that you are being really straightforward with them and giving them a reasonable amount of time to look for another place. Um, So they're not just getting like kicked out on a day's notice. I I think that would be my only concern in this situation. Yeah, that is a concern. And also having the understanding that like from a legal perspective, the boyfriend will be your tenant, like no matter how you like understand it as a pair, if he's legally going to become your tenant, if he's living in a house that you own, like regardless of whether he pays rent or not. Um, And so you might want to like, even if you're not going to call yourself a landlord, at least know some of the like laws around landlording. Yeah. I I think that's also really wise because I think not infrequently if someone's in this position and they're like, oh, I really don't want to think of myself as a landlord. One of the ways they can sort of unconsciously protect themselves from that is being like, I'll learn nothing about my like obligations in this situation uh, so that I can just like think of myself as just like someone who happens to be here. No big deal. Um, But in fact, it's actually really good to know like, what if you guys break up and you're like, you really want him out of your place? Like, how can you make sure that you're not in that situation? Like, taking any unnecessary advantage of uh, your legal position. And again, I hope that doesn't happen. Um, it sounds like you two are, are relatively like smart, reasonable people. And I hope if you do break up, uh, it will be an easy and peaceful breakup. But um, I, I think that's it. I think you're you're more worried than maybe you need to be, at least right now. So I also have like two more ways to think about how to break down the costs of uh, that's fabulous. Please do. To the partner. I, I have no practical suggestions left. Please go for it. Okay. Well, so another way is just to divide your household expenses somewhat differently. Uh, the letter writer takes over the entire mortgage because owning the house is important to them. Like that's what they value in their shared shared finances. So they do that and then have the boyfriend take on another expense that's very important to him. Whether that mm-hmm. might be like paying down personal debt that he has, that might be saving for vacations they can take together. It might just be like some aspect of maintenance in their shared space, but a way for him to contribute where where uh, the letter writer can still feel like complete ownership over the home. If that's maybe like something that was like a blocker to them when they were originally talking about like wanting to charge the boyfriend rent. Beautiful, beautiful. And um, I have nothing to add to that other than I support you wholeheartedly. But also, I barely know what interest is. So, you know, take that with as much salt as you need. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I, I appreciate it immensely. And, and thank you so much for just your, your level-headed um, and thoughtful expertise. And I hope you have a fabulous rest of your day. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with a guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. 
If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. This is also an opportunity for you to discern whether or not this is like a good relationship beyond just a few months. Like, it's one thing if she has a slightly imperfect reaction, but listens and is open-minded and like works with you. But like if she's really resistant, really defensive, really dismissive, that might be an indicator that this is not going to be, you know, a six month, one year, two year relationship for you. So this is also like a good opportunity to get some information about your longer term compatibility. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.